Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Over 39 historical accounts, as well as numerous archaeological discoveries well outside of the Bible's records, support the murder by crucifixion of Jesus, but rising from the dead three days later? Come on. Well, it turns out there is even more substantiated evidence to solidify this fact than even the crucifixion. Join us now as we cross the boundaries of history, eyewitness accounts, archaeological excavations, and modern-day testimonies of the risen Christ in the resurrection. Irrefutable corroboration. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to The Russick Outlook. Let me begin by thanking you, as always, for your time, in particular on, on this topic, which is titled The the Resurrection, The Irrefutable Corroboration, where I'm going to be investigating the evidence that does prove, in fact, overwhelmingly that Jesus was not only crucified, but he did, in fact, rise from the dead, just as the scriptures indicated. Uh, however, what we're going to do is be looking at evidence outside of the Bible, um, historical, archaeological, eyewitness testimonies, much the same as what I did in the previous broadcast where I titled it Jesus on Trial. Uh, I wanted to go about with the evidence in, in terms of the efficacy of, of, of the Bible and, and the validity that, that the Word of God is, in fact, true and accurate. Uh, but I wanted to concentrate here on the resurrection because this is the focal point. This is really what I would call the game changer uh, for all of Christianity. Because as the, the Apostle Paul said, you know, w- without, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, without the resurrection, you know, all bets are off. Then, you know, what we're doing is actually foolish. So that's how clear and, and how present this information was for for Paul himself, and, and I'll share a little bit about that or get into it w- about Paul, but plenty, plenty of others as well. So uh, ag- again, I just wanted to say thank you for your time. If you are a non-believer, if you're a skeptic, if you're sitting on the fence, I just ask you, if you wouldn't mind, just cast your doubts aside just for the uh, a few moments for during this presentation and, and try to you know look at it from a different vantage point. Uh, to to change the optics of your lenses and and because I'm 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 hopeful and I'm confident that we'll be looking at information that you may not have heard or you may not have considered in the light of of how this is being presented. Uh, but as I said, I began this last week. If you could, if you hadn't listened, that would probably be lay a good foundation, but not necessarily a pre qualifier. Uh, if 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 you are, you hadn't watched it because we're going to be showing you information that you can glean from right here and now, and and some of the evidence and some of the things that we're going to be bringing forth, you can look up online on the internet, books, etc., readily available. So on that note, if you do like information like this, the presentations like this, where we're going after the truth, uh, no matter where it takes us, and and investigating all different uh, angles and all different sources, Please hit the like and the subscribe button. Uh, you'll see the graphic coming across your screen. And, and if you could, you know, ring the bell, share the information. We're on all the social media platforms and Facebook and uh, Twitter and YouTube, as well as all the different podcast platforms. So, uh, you know, if you can, you know, I, I'd appreciate it. And also, if you jump on the Russick Outlook, uh, there we have uh, our email list. If you want to jump on there and, and sign up, we only notify you of new information or if you wanted to engage with us in some of our 
online uh, Bible gatherings that we do a couple of times a month. But while you're out there, let me just say this, and I'll and I'll and I'll move on. If you have uh, commentary that you'd like to share, whether it's YouTube or, or or at the Russick Outlook or any of these others, please by all means, whether you agree or disagree, I, I, I'm I'm always willing to engage. If you have a question or a comment, I've been so. Uh, um, grateful for a lot of the commentary. So many people have said they've been getting so much uh, out of these different presentations. And uh, there's others that, you know, I've got a couple of wise comments or sarcastic comments, and that's all good. It's, it's, you know, because I always feel like, you know, all questions, all commentary, it's all worthwhile no matter where you're at, uh, because this is about having an honest, an honest dialogue, which I feel at times uh, in, in, in the church in particular, they, they shy away from some of these things, and, and I think it's to their own detriment. Um, so let, let's get into this. So as I said, this is really Jesus on trial. We're going to be looking at the what I call the irrefutable corroboration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's set the stage. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified and he died for the forgiveness of sins and he resurrected from the dead, and most importantly, he lives today. So I, I just kind of want to lay this, this this groundwork. So about 30 AD or so, Jesus of Nazareth, he was crucified during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, which he was running uh, ruling from AD 14 to 37. This was in the province of Judea, which we now know, you know, is modern-day Israel. After dying on the cross, he was buried, buried in the tomb of a prominent Jewish leader named Joseph of Arimathea, Early on Sunday, and I'm just putting a question mark whether you want to believe it was Friday to Sunday, you know, that's, that, that's moot, but that's what people celebrated. I'm not going to get into that part of it, though. Uh, so, but after his crucifixion, several women who followed Jesus, including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, went to Jesus' tomb intending to anoint the body with spices and ointments. Women wondered who would roll away the stone from them because they saw this. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, but when they were on their way there. And this is all documented in the Gospels. Uh, suddenly there was an earthquake and an angel appeared. The women found the tomb empty. They feared something had happened to the body of Jesus. An angel of the Lord assured the women that Jesus was alive and had risen from the dead. And again, you can find all of the accounts of this in the Gospels, in particular Mark, uh, Luke, and Matthew. Um, leaving the tomb, the women went to tell Jesus' disciples what happened. Before they reached the disciples, Jesus himself appeared to the women. So that's very important because Jesus first appeared to women, and I'll share a little bit about that, but women were not considered to be credible witnesses in the day, and he chose to, what I say, flip the script, and, and he's going to appear to the women. Um, over the next few weeks, Jesus appears to more than 500 others, verifying that he did, in fact, uh, was, was raised from the dead. So over the centuries, skeptics have developed several different objections to the resurrection of Jesus, and they've proposed several different alternative theories about what actually happened to the body of Jesus. We're going to get into, I don't know that we'll cover everybody's objections, but I'm going to I'm going to cover what I think is, is, is uh, are the most popular, and I'm also going to present some things that I think will give you a little bit of a different uh, perspective. Uh, many believe that Jesus' resurrection is too difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I, I, I don't. I, I believe that you can prove Jesus' resurrection way beyond the, uh, a, a reasonable doubt, and that's what we're going to get into. So that's kind of laying the foundation.
So Jesus was a mythological figure, and I, I think we've shown so much of this in the previous broadcast, the, the verifiable evidence of, of Jesus' life. But, you know, if, if, if you hadn't listened to that, but, you know, the question is, did Jesus of Nazareth actually exist? And if he did exist, what proof is there that he was crucified? So the evidence for Christ comes from many different uh, written documents from the first century. There were 39 ancient uh, sources aside from the New Testament. And, and this, came, this documented the life of Christ, his crucifixion, and his res- resurrection. Ignatius was a church leader. He was a pupil of the Apostle John. Many people feel like, and, you know, Jesus was, was closest with, with, with John and a few others, and, and you know, and, and, and Peter as well. Um, but Ignatius was this church leader, and he lived about 70 years after the resurrection. So, in other words, he was, he was around at that time, uh, and he, eventually he became martyred. Uh, he was he was killed for his belief, and his um, eyewitness account of the fact that Jesus had rose from the dead. Um, and this is what Ignatius wrote. Uh, he said he was condemned. He was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination or deceit. He really died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. I want to read First Corinthians fifteen three through eight because this is the creed of which is so much is, is um, the foundation of our, of our faith. And when I say our, I'm, I'm pointing to Christians, I myself being one. Uh, it says here, and this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to be present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, and, and, and I'll, I'll get into this again in, in a little while, but not only is he pointing to, hey, you've got 500 people that he appeared to, over 500, and a lot of them are alive today. And if you don't believe them, go ask them, go, go you know, see for yourself. So in other words, these are eyewitnesses. So if you are going to trial and somebody says, I saw that person alive, then, you know, that's to be taken as credible, particularly in the fact that you would have upwards of 500 different people saying the same thing. Uh, after that, he was seen by James and then all the apostles, and the last of all by me also, uh, Paul, and I'm going to get into why that's so special with Paul. Second Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is saying right there, so he's not only an eyewitness, but he's he's alluding to the fact that People are saying that, oh, no, this is just too hard to believe. You know, we, we, we can't even fathom the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So then I would flip the script to you today. Not only do you have all these different eyewitnesses, and aside from the Bible, I'm going to talk about modern day. Here I am. I'm in the end of October of 2021. Jesus is appearing to many today in visions and dreams. Muslim conversions throughout different nations, particularly in some of the more oppressed nations, uh, I'm going to cite Iran as one of them. Iran is one of the fastest growing churches in the world today, despite its persecution. And these 
people are saying they're coming to faith in Jesus because Jesus is appearing to them. They are physically seeing him. They, they you know, it, 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 it's, it's, um, uh, what's the word I want? It's, it, it, it's touched their senses. It's touched their soul. Um, it, it's paramount in, in, in their inner core in, in their faith in Jesus so much so that many of these people are willing and some have died for, for the cause because as you know, in some of these, uh, Muslim dominated countries, they do not allow for the preaching of the gospel. So not only do we, am, am I citing some of the things and some of the eyewitnesses, and I'll continue to do that in this presentation, but I wanted to emphasize the fact that people are coming to Christ, the church is growing uh, in different regions throughout the world. And, you know, I'm coming to you from the United States, but I, I'm sure, you know, plenty, you know, people listening from other countries. Uh, and this encourages me when I hear about the underground church in China and, and the growth there. When I hear about what's going on in Afghanistan today, and, and despite all the persecution, how the Christians are standing strong in their faith. And, you know, it's it, why? Because Jesus is real to them. The crucifixion and the resurrection is real. So now let's look at that historical and archaeological corroboration outside of the Bible. So I, I'm showing you here many different uh, writings from the past, very credible people. Um, uh, Cornelius Tacticus, uh, he was considered a great historian from ancient Rome. He reported in 64 AD that there was a fire started in Rome. It destroyed three quarters of the city over a nine-day period. He reports the fire was planned by the wickedly unstable Emperor Nero. In response, Nero created a diversion calling for the torture and execution of Christians. Why would they be torturing and executing them? Because they believed and they, and, and they stood in the faith that Jesus rose from the dead. This leaves no doubt that Christians existed in 64 AD. In addition, they faced hideous persecution. Tacticus writes, the Christians were covered in animal flesh, then turned over to wild dogs to be eaten or hung on crosses. Why on crosses? They were mocking them because Jesus was, was nailed and crucified on a cross. Let me go over to uh, jo, jo, uh, Flavius Josephus. His writing uh, from the Antiquities, it covers many different books, but he gets into the crucifixion and, and the resurrection. He talks about the crucifixion from Pilate and was you know very much aware, wrote about that. Um, he also writes in detail about the executions of John the Baptist, the stoning death of the Apostle James, and also the acts uh, that were joined conspiring between Roman authorities and the Sanhedrin priests. Because as you know, you know they, they were in cahoots with one another. So, jo so Josephus, a well, very well credible historian, writes plenty about this. Uh, a Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, uh, his writings speak of Christianity speak, uh, spreading throughout the Roman Empire. It addresses the procedure for persecuting followers of this quote-unquote superstition. It mentions Christ three times as the center of Christianity and describes Christian practices, including the worship of Christ, as to a god. How are they worshiping him? They're worshiping him because he is the risen Christ. They wouldn't be worshiping a man. Uh, Suetonius uh, he was the secretary and, and the historian to Hadrian, which was the emperor of Rome. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, or Christ, he, Claudius, was expelled them from Rome. The reason I'm bringing this out is because this exact account is, is found in Acts 18.2. 
This is uh, Luke, where he writes, There he met a, na- uh, a Jew named Aquia and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So it's, it's basically, I'm, I'm citing an outside historical um, account verifying a specific account in the book of Acts. And I could go on and on. Uh, there's uh, Mara Bar Seraphon, who was a Syrian philosopher. Um, there's Lucian of Samosota. Um, and, and then there's in, uh, more accounts in the uh, Babylonian Talmud uh, uh, of the Sanhedrin. These accounts talk about his crucifixion on the eve of Passover and, and the miracles that, that, that accompanied not only Jesus, but his followers afterwards. They refer to it as sorcery because they have no other explanation for it. But what I'm getting here is there's plenty of resources. And as I said, there's 39 altogether outside of the Bible. I'm just giving you a few, a few specific ones uh, to cite. So let me, I want you to consider something here. Messianic prophecy, meaning the, the, the accounts and the prophecies of the Old Testament, is a collection of 300 predictions in, in the Jewish scriptures about the future of the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, and, and these predictions were written by multiple authors, uh, multiple authors in numerous books over approximately a thousand years. And again, I've cited a lot of this in, in the previous broadcast. And I also went through how we get about the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're interested in how that came about, that's also covered there. But there, there's some interesting, there's some statisticians that went through some of the information here and they broke it down. And they said, they said this, the probability of just eight prophecies. Now we're talking about 300, but eight or, and, and also if you wanted to just break it down even further, there are 50 that, over 50 that deal with the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person is one in one quad trillion or 10 to the 10, 10 times 10 to the 15th power. In other words, it's it's far beyond anything you can imagine. Not a hundred thousand, not a hundred million, not a not a trillion, not a hundred trillion, not a not a hundred trillion, but a quad trillion, which is the next number afterwards. And and if you're following me on video, I'm I'm showing how many three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen zeros. So you do the math. I can't. Um, so with that being said i said you know let me let me look at eight different prophecies that we know can be verified that came to pass consider that one person came from the line of king david he was born in bethlehem he entered in jerusalem on a donkey or some translations would say a cult he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver which is actually much more than what would have been the account of that day when it was written he was crucified he was, knowing he was crucified, it also says his bones would not be broken. He was buried in a rich man's tomb and he would rise from the dead. So there's eight prophecies that we know have come to pass, and that's the odds of that happening. Now I'm going to go over to what Jesus himself said. He predicted his death and his resurrection. Mark 8.31, and it says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So Jesus knew the scriptures. I've I've said this before, you know, when they were uh, referencing the Bible at the time, they were referencing the Old Testament. He was looking at those particular scriptures. He knew himself 
you know, what, what was to come. So this is the odds of, in, in other words, it couldn't happen. We're talking about 300 prophecies or 50 prophecies, and th- these are the odds of just eight. Imagine, like, if you wanted to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Well, I'm going to make sure that I come from the line of King David, huh? Or I'm going to be born in, in Bethlehem. Really? You know, it's just, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And this is all verifiable. So on the note of some saying this is a fabricated story, because some people actually believe that even today. And I would say no fake news. This is not fake news. After Jesus died, his followers created, this is what they say, that after Jesus died, his followers created a plan to deceive the entire world into believing Jesus is the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of scripture and the son of God who rose from the dead. Really? That, that's what they did? Well, consider that the disciples were not exactly the fearless liars who wanted to fool the world. On the contrary, they, they fled for their lives. Peter denied Jesus three times. Uh, however, what changed? They saw him. They touched him. They broke bread with him. This is what changed and transformed their lives. And afterwards, where Jesus said, you must wait for the, for the Holy Spirit, once they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they left their former jobs. They entered a life by sharing about Jesus, enduring hunger, persecution, abandonment, imprisonment, suffering, torture, death. All of this they did for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of sharing the good news for you and I to glean that information today and hopefully transform our lives. Now consider the women at the empty tomb. They were afraid. They were thinking somebody stole the body. But what happened? Jesus appeared to them. Then things calmed down. They saw the risen Christ. The disciples did not believe the women. Remember, women were not credible witnesses. How did they come to believe? They saw him. They touched him. They, they Again, they broke bread. Think about Thomas, what's infamously known as the Doubting Thomas. Even when they told him, he said, I won't know it until I put my finger in his holes, you know, in, 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 in the side of his in the side of his belly, in the side of his uh, by his ribs. Uh, he saw those holes. He knew what was going on. He saw the holes in his hands and his feet. So these were the things that, you know, I, I say this is not this is this cannot be fabricated. It's 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 really a silly thing. If I believe if people would say something like that, they just, they're uninformed. Think about James. James did not believe, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he did not believe Jesus. What happened? He saw Jesus. He experienced Jesus. Uh, and we, we see that in, in 1 Corinthians. Once he saw Jesus, and, and after personally interacting with him, what happens? He's not only changed he becomes the leader of the new church in Jerusalem. He's the one who starts the church in the city that Jesus died in and, and loved and wept over. Here's something I wanted to kind of bring out, and, and I don't know that a lot of people know this. It's not necessarily related to this. Uh, it is and it's not, but I wanted to just touch on it. Uh, I'm reading from Mark 13, 53, 57, because I'm pointing out that James didn't, here did not believe in Jesus but neither it appears that his brothers or sisters, and, and a lot of people don't realize Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and get these mighty works? Mighty works. In other words, you know, he, he was performing miracles. Is this not the carpenter's son? So they knew him. This was his hometown. 
and they knew Joseph, his father, his half-father, stepfather. Uh, is not his mother called Mary and his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So in other words, they were all there. And, when, and uh, where then did this man get these things? And they were offended at him. In other words, you know, here James, James took offense to this. So what, what can we take from this also? Side note, Jesus had four half-brothers and at least two sisters. It doesn't say how many, but it does say plural sisters. So we know that there's at least two there. Think about Paul the Apostle. Most scholars would agree that Paul was the skeptic. Remember, he persecuted the early church. He condemned them. He, 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 he uh, had them bought on charges. He, he jailed them. He uh, allowed physical uh, torture to go forth. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. He was part of all of this. But what happened? He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was utterly transformed by seeing Jesus, just as James was, and just as so many thousands and billions of people here today. Not that billions of people have seen him. I don't know. I'm, maybe they have over the years. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. But these are the accounts that we, can, that we can look into and back up. How about these witnesses? So let me read 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So right there, what I said in the opening, that's Paul saying, if he's not raised from the dead, then, then, then we're, we're in the, wrong, we're, we're in the lo- wrong line of work, if you will. Uh, so that's how certain he was of this. And then he talks about the witnesses, what I read earlier, and most of whom are still living, if you don't believe me, though some have fallen asleep. Here's some of the others, and I cite all the different scriptures of all the different people he appeared to. Mary Magdalene, other women, Cleopas and his companion, 11 disciples and others, 10 uh, apostles aside from Thomas, uh, then seven apostles, then to the disciples, and then to the apostles, including Thomas, then to the apostles on the Mount of Olives. And I'm giving you all these scriptures here. You can, uh, if, if you're listening on podcast, you can go on the video and you can find them out. It's all there. So my point here is over these 40 days, Jesus appeared to so many that we know of that's written in the Gospels, but then how many others, you know, we, that we don't know of. Now I wanted to switch gears to somebody who I, I found very interesting, and since we're talking about the proof of the resurrection, Simon Greenleaf, he helped kind of write the foundation for our legal justice system today. He wrote a three-volume set called the, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. So in other words, he gives you the foundation of what's laid down into all the courts, the Supreme Court today, of, of how they would go about uh, arriving at their decisions, whether it's guilt or innocence or, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're judging. But he was an atheist, and uh, he was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. This was a, 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 what I would consider a high intellectual. So he authored this book, and he literally, he, you know, you can say that he wrote the rules of evidence for the U.S. legal system. But something interesting happened. He accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the evidence for Christ's resurrection. After six years of personally collecting, examining the evidence based on the rules of evidence that he helped establish that we live by today, Greenleaf became a Christian and he wrote the classic book, Testimony of the Evangelist. It says this, he, this is from Greenleaf. It says, let the gospel's testimonies be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party. 
the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. End of sentence. And I'm going to show you two things that really jumped out at Greenleaf as he was investigating and poring over this for six years. Um, that I just, while we're here, I wanted to look at another famous attorney, uh, Sir Lionel Luckhu of England. He is considered one of the greatest uh, uh, lawyers in British history. He is recorded in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's most successful advocate with 245 murder acquittals. He was twice knighted by Queen Elizabeth. He writes this, and uh, it says, I, have, I humbly add I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And, he, and this is from his book, The Question Answered, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? So here you have two of the, the, the most gifted legal minds in the world you know, that we know of, and, and you know, I, I've accounted for it. I don't know what Luckhu's prior background was, but at least look at it from the standpoint of Greenleaf being an attorney. And there's so many different accounts of atheists who wanted to go about proving or disproving the validity of Scripture in Jesus and once they did look at the evidence honestly, they, they realized and they came to not only accept Jesus, but to engage in a life with Christ. So something that really struck me that I, I, I think must be borne out here, and this was one of the things that really struck Greenleaf as he began to look at the evidence. I'm going to cite uh, two things here. John 19.38. And if you're following me on video, I just want to, this is where uh, Nicodemus was uh, preparing the body uh, with Joseph of Arimathea. And he says, and it also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So they were wrapping him in what would be considered a type of embalming fluid. And they're wrapping him in uh, like a mummy. Uh, and where would they get this? Well, remember, the Jews spent... 440 years in Egypt, so they they learned firsthand, saw, you know, how to prepare the dead because they did not want this body to decompose, and so they went to great lengths. So it says about 100 pounds. So if you've got myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, um, some, you know, some measurements would, would, would dispute that, so some would go as low as 75, depending upon the interpretation. Okay, so let's say 75. But if you have this and you're going to add 75 pounds on, could it be 75 pounds of each, 75, 150, 225 pounds, in addition to the weight of Jesus is what I'm getting at. It says, then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in stripes of linen with, with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. So my point here is, and it goes on to say, I'm sorry, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation for the day, for the tomb was nearby. So in other words, they wrapped his entire body, but it goes on to say where, except for the, 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 the head part, which is where they, they dropped the, um, the cloth over him. 
So in other words, his body was encased. It was mummified. Think of a cast today. So I'm giving you, a, in, on video, I'm giving you a little uh, a clip art piece of how they do that. So that's how Jesus' body was was wrapped. And, you know, so many people, when you think of the empty tomb, they think Jesus was just dropped in there and left alone. No, it shows in here that he was wrapped in, in, in linens and fine spices. So then if you go to John 21 through 10, and this is where Mary Magdalene, uh, you know, had seen them and then went and told the disciples. And this is where uh, Peter goes running and with, with, with John. And it says, they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. He did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. So in other words, the linen cloths that, that embalmed Jesus was still there, but the body was not. Then it goes on to say, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So side note, Jewish customs of the day, if the master is getting up from the table, if he's done, he just kind of crumples his napkin or cloth and leaves it there. But if he folds it, he means don't take away things. He's coming back. He's returning. And interestingly enough, that's what happened. Jesus folded the napkin, which I believe is another sign that he's coming back again. Then in closing, I just wanted to point out John 20, 1 through 10, I'm sorry, verse 8 here. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in and also, and he saw and believed. So in this instance, what he saw was the empty uh, uh, mixture or the mummified cast without the body. So that was something that you know, his eyewitness account there, and, I, and, you know, and it was corroborated, the two of them. So it wasn't even one. It was two witnesses right there for that. And that was a, it was very instrumental in, in Greenleaf's examination because he said, you know what, you know, some silly superstitions would say that they took away the body and, the, you know, the, the apostles or the disciples hid it. Well, they, you know, Greenleaf's thinking was there's several hundred pounds of aloes that he's wrapped in. And not not only the, the body weight of Jesus, let's say conservatively, he's 160 to 175 pounds. Then you couple on top of that all the weight of the, the these um, these aloes and mixtures. You know that's that that's that's a very heavy, large man and, and object to be carrying around and moving, and not 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 only that, but getting through the Roman guards, and we'll cover that. Then the other thing that really stuck out to Greenleaf was the account throughout history of the Christian martyrs. These are all people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They saw Jesus, they walked with Jesus, and they suffered a horrible death at times. I'm giving you all the different accounts on video. James was beaten and stoned at the age of 94. Peter's brother Andrew was arrested and crucified. Uh, he was then hung on the two ends of the cross, transversely in the ground, hence the name St. Andrew's Cross. Right after Jesus died, there were so many coming to Christ. 2,000 uh, were, were martyred, and this is in historical records. Uh, John was ordered from Rome to Ephesus, where he was cast in a cauldron of boil. I should say this, I'm sorry. John is the only one who did not uh, die, but he was martyred. He, they attempted to kill him. They put him in the boiling vat of oil, and he would not die. So they later sentenced him to the island of Patmos. 
and most people would know that that's where the book of Revelation was uh, was written. Uh, Paul's face was so dramatic, it says, in the face of his killers that he was privately executed by the sword under Nero. In other words, I, I, I would imagine that the power of Holy Spirit was just so strongly on him that they didn't want anyone to see it. Uh, James, the, the son of Zebedee and the elder brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request when he was taken to Rome. He said, I don't, I don't deserve to suffer the way Jesus did. Uh, Bartholomew, beaten and crucified in India. Philip, a disciple from Beth- Bethsaida in Galilee, he was scourged and thrown into prison and crucified under Heliopolis in uh, Phrygia in 54 AD. Thomas, put to death by the sword. Jude, brother of James, crucified in Edessa. Jude, brother, uh, I'm sorry, Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Uh, and then Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and beheaded. So what happens is all of this evidence, you know, you don't die. And this is like 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years later, these people are dying for the risen Christ. You, you know, you don't do that unless you've had that encounter with Jesus, unless you believe it. So, you know, th- this was even more evidence that stood out as as they examined things. Then consider the Roman guards, and, and what I'm saying, bribery, is I'm, I'm starting to wind this down. Um, led by uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the chief priests sought out Pilate, and they requested, basically, we need this tomb covered. It says we fear that, that you know, because Jesus and his friends said he would rise from the dead. So they assembled a Roman guard, uh, a legion of guard, depending upon the interpretation, goes anywhere from 16 to 30 different people. These were trained soldiers of the Roman Empire, um, and they rolled a stone with the Roman seal on it to cover the tomb. That's how. That's the great length that they went to, and, and Pilate had agreed. He placed his best guards, um, and, and he put them in there so that nothing would happen, but it didn't matter because Jesus rose from the dead, and nothing was going to stop it. But, you know, my point here is if—, if you know, the supposedly they came and they stole his body and they took his body. How could they get by all of these Roman guards? How could they move a 2,000 pound rock? These, you know, what I'll call, you know, somewhat fearful disciples, if not scaredy cats. And then they're facing, you know, some of the meanest people. And also, if you were to fall asleep while you were on guard, you could be sentenced to death. That's how serious they took this because. If you're, you know, if you're on guard, you're you're being entrusted with the others' lives, you know, that you're working with. So this was, this was no small feat. Then the other thing I'll talk about is that the uh, um, the chief priests, after they learned all of this, they bribed the the guards to say that um, that you know that they had taken away the body, that he didn't in fact rise from the dead. Why would they do that? If, if Jesus was dead, just produce the body. Produce the body and you're done. But the body was gone because he rose from the dead and they couldn't do that. So this is all well, well documented, not only in the Bible, but outside of the Bible. I cited, and I just wanted to, you know, visit this again, that Luke was considered a great, phenomenal historian. Uh, he was considered, a, and, and I, I cited here, uh, William Ramsey who was an atheist, another one who turned to be a Christian. He went on about disproving Luke because Luke went into such such incredible detail in his book and the book of Acts. Um, and he you know, later concluded that Luke was a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, 
He is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, the author should be placed among the greatest historians. Uh, Historian Sherwin, A.N. Sherwin writes, In all, Luke names 39 countries, 54 cities, nine islands without error. Um, And and then John McRae writes, For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject historicity must now appear absurd. So throughout the book of Acts, Jesus appears after the, the, the crucifixion. He rises from the dead, and these people investigated all of this evidence. And, they, and then he goes on to say the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is Luke is a very accurate historian. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His Greek approach is classical quality. He writes as an educated man. Archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. I will also say this, that today we have more than 5,300 handmade Greek manuscripts made before 1500 AD. We know of the, the accuracy of this. We talked about this in the prior broadcast. But So what that means is that the text of the New uh, Testament it pres- is preserved better than the writings of Plato and Aristotle and anything else we have. So the verification and the great deal of length that's gone to preserve the accuracy and the integrity of these writings, these letters, these, the, the, these notations is of the utmost quality. And it's been proven time and time again, even by the most ardent skeptic who wanted to disprove Jesus, who wanted to disprove Christ, but in the end came in, 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 in the face of truth and they couldn't deny the truth. So some people will say that well, it's not really that important, the resurrection. Really? I'm showing you three things that I think show overwhelming support of how important the crucifixion and the resurrection in particular means today. I'm showing you here on video, if you're following me, there's a picture of a good friend of mine who was baptized in the Jordan River. I just happened to be taking this picture and others who were baptized that day a few years ago. He's with uh, uh, our, our pastor and associate pastor there, and you just see the joy in his face. He wanted, so he talked about it on, on, on the way there. He was just pumped. He wanted to be baptized in the Jordan, and he saved you know that time uh, specifically for that. But I, what I love about this picture is his overwhelming joy. He's like, yes, I did it, I did it, I did it. And and But what I'm getting at is this symbols symbolizes the death and the resurrection. When you go under the water, it symbolizes the death. When you come out, that you are a new creation, you are born again into the family of God, you are baptized, and, and that's significant today. It was signi- And it's, it's, it's a requirement. It's, it's, it's been, you know, th- throughout the, I mean, Jesus himself was baptized, um, not for the forgiveness of sins, but that's another subject. But the importance of it is seen today. So the crucifixion and the resurrection is not only seen in baptism, it's also seen in communion. That's what we do. We, 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 we celebrate by partaking in, in, the, in the bread and the wine or the grape juice, uh, which symbolizes the bread and the blood of Jesus Christ. So even today, throughout churches, throughout the entire world, uh, you know, we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I also wanted to talk about the scattering of the early Jews. I hadn't thought about that this until until studying this. We all know about how the Jews were scattered uh, and in the Disipora and you know for twenty five hundred years, and yeah, that in of itself is another miracle that we see that Jesus said uh, or, or the Lord said that I will um, my people will be scattered throughout the world and I will bring them back to their homeland. 
And they have 2,500 years later, which is what I would say the biggest super sign that we're living in today concerning the end times. But there is accounts of that they believe right around this time where Jesus, where Jesus uh, rose from the dead and then the early church began, they, there are tens of thousands of Jews that came to be Christians. And what I thought about is not only did the, the, the history in the, of, of the Jewish people bring us Jesus, but they very well, I believe, this is my opinion, were very integral in spreading the gospel because these early Jews who turned Christians were later sentenced or sent overseas because they, they broke the Jews up. So they were sent throughout the Roman Empire, and I would imagine that they were uh, sharing the good news, sharing the resurrection, sharing you know what they had seen and witnessed in Israel— and now started to share it in Spain and France and Italy and, and other parts of Turkey and Northern Africa and Egypt and so forth and so on. So I, I, I realized after looking at this, this was just, you know, it's another way that I, I, I would say the Lord kind of flipped the script that these early Jewish believers were, were instrumental in spreading the gospel. Because remember, they're like Paul. They had believed and thought one thing, but then they came to realize that what they were waiting for and believing for was, in fact, Jesus the Messiah. He is the one who the the Old Testament writers had written about. So what I'm pointing out is is how important the resurrection is today, where people say, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether you believe this or not. It does matter. It matters greatly. And I'm going to close. I'm going to bring this down to a close. I'm going to look at two things that I want you to consider, especially if if if— you're not a believer. I'm going to cite Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was the very first prophecy that came out. It was written by Moses. So it's written thousands of years ago. But what's important here is it not only talks about Jesus going to the cross, and why do I say that, how he bruised his heel. When you are crucified, you push up for air. And the way you have to do that to breathe, because you're you're nailed to the cross by your feet and your uh, in your hands, you have to push off with your heel in order to get air into your lungs because you're being suffocated, and that is actually what bruises the heel. So even here, thousands of years before the crucifixion, it is the first uh, um, prophetic announcement that came came from Scripture, but it's it's such detailed accuracy that we see this, that this is actually what happened, and that Jesus' heel was, in fact, bruised as a result of the crucifixion. The other thing I wanted to point out is Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to break in a lot of detail, but this was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that that Daniel had interpreted for him, not only interpreted, but told him what the dream was. And it was about this giant statue, and it represents four empires that were to come. King Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian Empire, which was the head of gold. Then you had the chest of silver, the uh, um, the, the bronze of, of, of thighs, the legs of, of iron, uh, and then the feet, which is cast of iron and, uh, and clay. The reason this is important is it's more fulfillment of prophecy. This, uh, this is basically outlying... Uh, what the four upcoming empires would be thousands of years before it happened. 
So, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this now. I've covered this in a, in a prior broadcast about Daniel. You can look this up online. Plenty of information about it. The chest represents the Medo-Persian uh, Empire, which came after the Babylonian, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. And, and why these metals specifically align as symbols with those empires. And then you have the fifth empire, which is uh, feet of iron and, and uh, toes of clay, meaning that iron and clay don't mix. It'll be a fragile empire. My point here is these four empires came to pass that was foretold in prophecy uh, well before it happened in such incredible detail that we know that those empires came to pass and we have the historical records of it and that we are on the cusp of this final empire before the return of Jesus. And, you know, you can just look around today, uh, you, you know, and all of the evidence is there from a cashless society to the to socialism being welcomed in the front door. Look at Jerusalem, look at Israel, the economic chaos, the Ezekiel 38 war. It's, it's, it's on the cusp. You have all of the major players on the Syrian border today. You, you know, then you talk about the human microchipping, which can bring in the cashless society, how you need to log in. It, you know, it, it basically enables you to make a contactless payment. Uh, it has a financial profile of you. It has an ID of you. Um, you can have direct communication, and it knows your health status. I mean, all of these things, all this technology is in place. So we know that Fifth Empire is right around the corner. Again, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now. I don't know, but it's close because all of these pieces are coming together. The reason I wanted to bring this out is the the close of this uh, um, dream is that a mountain comes and it shatters all of the world empires and it basically is a symbol uh, of Jesus coming with the return of Jesus and setting up his millennial kingdom. This is the another prophecy of Jesus coming in his return and that is what we are awaiting. So not only uh, was Jesus resurrected from the dead, he is returning. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. We are that close, and I'm emphasizing this fact because all of these signs, all of these symbols, everything is documented. It's all right here. Well, it also means you have to have faith, and I don't want to discount the importance of faith. I've given you all of the intellectual and maybe the philosophical arguments and everything, but it also, you know, Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There are rewards coming. There are rewards coming for what we do on earth. But none of it means anything unless we have a relationship with Jesus. Because if we deny Jesus today, he will deny us before the Father at that time when he will come and he is coming again. So if you think you're, you know, you get by by living a good life or you've done this, you know, you've done this good deed or I've given away money or I've helped this person, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters. I, I shouldn't say it that way. That was wrong. It does matter. But what matters most importantly is your relationship with Jesus. And it's been laid out here overwhelmingly, you know, the evidence that supports this. So you know, I, I would hope you would consider it, but ultimately, it, it, you know, Jesus says, I knock on the door of your heart. It takes, you have to answer his call. It takes that leap of faith, and that's what I call it, where you have to really believe in something that you don't necessarily see with your physical eyes, 
what these people saw, many of these accounts saw the risen Christ, you know, I, I would say that, you know, 99% of the people, if not more, have not had that encounter, or at least I haven't. Um, but I believe in him, and I've had that relationship, and I have that relationship, and I could go on and on about the different reasons I support that. But I wanted to address the the verifiable evidence, the intellectual capacity of your right side of your brain, but I also do not want to discount that it, faith, you know, it, it ultimately is a leap of faith. It is saying yes to the risen Savior. So on that note, let me just close this out. Truth, it is definitive. It should be qualified, and most importantly, it must be sought. Spin doctoring truth is being practiced by all sides of religious, science, education, political, and, and more often than not, they, they are ab- about promoting subjective conclusions rather than objective analysis. Just like a court of law, truth at times may need to be tried and argued for, but in the end, it is absolute. It was my intent to, to try truth here, to bring truth to the forefront. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And my, my question to you is, what say you? And I would close with what Mark eight thirty four through 38 says. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up the cross, follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I believe that says it all. So it's it's up to you. He gives you free will. He gives you free choice, free decision. Hopefully I've presented some information for you to consider if, if you're not there. And if you are there, that's great. And, and perhaps some information here helped you that maybe you can share with others. Maybe show this video or this audio with somebody else or some of the information. Just bring it to their attention. Uh, because that's, that's my intent here is to bring about the truth and, and, and let people make an informed decision. So as always, again, thank you for your time. Uh, any email uh, or questions or comments, email russicoutlook at gmail.com. Again, if you're on any of these platforms, you want to comment to, to me on the platform, that'd be great. If you have a prayer request, by all means, uh, shoot me an email. Um, or if you're looking for a church in your area, tell me what area of the country or the world you are. And I assure you, I will do my very best to utilize my contacts to point you to good Bible-believing churches. Thank you again. You've been listening to the Russick Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.